Hello, everyone. Thank you for listening to this new podcast. I'm Katie Sanders, and I wanted to just explain a little bit why I started this podcast. Um, I'm a third-year graduate student at UC Irvine, and I love biology. I love uh, studying microRNA and stem cells and cell biology, but I also realize that I'm around a lot of really interesting and amazing people, um, and I thought this would be a good opportunity to talk to them and have them share their experiences and talk about what it's like to be um, in science or curious about science. And so, yeah, I started this podcast. Um, the guest on this podcast is a fellow graduate student, Kathy, and uh, I think she gave some really good advice and had some really good points about graduate school, and um, so I'm really excited to share it with you. If you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe to it on iTunes and share it with your family and friends, particularly anyone that's interested in science. And um, you can email me at uh, biocuriouskatie at gmail.com if you have any questions or comments. And you can also follow me on Twitter. Um, it's the same as my Gmail, but it's at biocuriouskatie. All right, thanks and enjoy. Hello, and welcome to the second episode of Curious Life of a Scientist. Today, we'll be talking to Kathy Harker, a fellow graduate student. She's a fourth-year student at UC Irvine. Um, hi, Kathy. Hi, everyone. <laughs> hi, Katie. So let's just start with talking about your journey um, through childhood and high school and undergrad and kind of when and how you got interested in science. Yes, so I think I kind of um, fell in love with science as a kind of early teen and in high school, um, reading sci-fi fiction with my dad. Um, and my dad was a high school health science teacher, and he was trained in sports medicine, so he was into human anatomy and that kind of stuff. And um, cool. So, so you're I, around it. Yeah. So up. I kind of grew up a nerd <laughs> from <laughs> from birth. It was in my genes. So um, so yes, I really enjoyed that. And then I did well in high school biology and high school chemistry and found that those were subjects that really interested me. I took a human anatomy class and we got to dissect cats. And <gasps> I did that too. Yeah, it was a blast. It's really interesting. Yeah, I totally loved it. Um, and I realized that I, I also found that I did not get grossed out easily, which is a good thing when you're a <laughs> biologist. Yes. Um, my threshold for being grossed out is very high. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, so I found that that was really something that interested me. And so then when I went to college and kind of you have to pick a major, you're freshman year, I was crazy and picked biochemistry because I'm nuts um, <laughs> and, and kind of, uh, and then ventured through that as, as an undergraduate. And where did you go to undergrad? Yeah, I went to California Lutheran University, which is a small private uh, liberal arts school in Thousand Oaks, California. Um, it's a real school. It has a real campus with real <laughs> students and it's not made up. It's not online. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I'm very proud of my university. And, and so while I was there, I was able to participate in um, undergraduate research. Um, at the summer of my freshman year, I worked in a genetics laboratory um, working with fruit flies, um, which was exciting, but also kind of gross. And I didn't really that was my gross out limit, I guess, because the fly, the fly food is just the most miserable smelling thing. It's like sour bread. It's just disgusting. Um, and I just, you know, you flip over enough flies and pile up boys and girls that you just, you're done. You don't ever need to do genetics again. Yeah. <laughs> so for me, that was kind of, you know, my realization that genetics was not for me. And, and I think that was important. I think it's important to learn the things that you don't like as much as it is to learn the things that you do. And so I kind Definitely. of can check that off. Um, and so then after that, I worked in a lab um, that was focused more on virology, and we studied um, uh, a recombinant version of um, HIV as well as HHV6, which is a her human herpes virus, and HCV, or hepatitis C virus, mm -hmm. um, in a co-infection model in human T cells. And so I did a lot of that as an undergrad and have a second author publication from that work, which um, I think great. kind of merits some of the, or, or explains some of the merits of going to a private small private undergraduate institution is that you don't compete with graduate students to work mm -hmm. on projects because there aren't graduate students. So um, if you want to work in a lab and you can show that you're really committed, um, you can do quite well um, at an undergraduate yeah. university. I wonder there. if you got more one-on-one -on -one time with professors yeah. and with PIs. Um, 
because you were at a smaller school. Yeah, I think I did have um, have an opportunity to interact with um, with professors in a way that was different than I would have had were I at um, a, a university like UCI, because um, you have an opportunity to really get close with your ow. Oh, <laughs> sorry, no. I'm being attacked by a cat. Oh, I'm sorry. She's getting you. Okay, <laughs> let me get her out. You think you got <clears throat> more one-on-one time with professors and the PI because it was a smaller school. Yeah, I think I think you definitely do. I mean, it's a different environment. Research is not a primary goal at um, at the primary undergraduate institutions mm-hmm. the way that it is at a research institution. But the the professors do research, and there are professors there that are interested in research and interested in working with undergraduates. And so I had a very close relationship with my mentor um, in the lab that I stayed in for a long period of time, the virus lab. Um, so much so that like he was at my wedding. <laughs> He's oh, a mentor nice. in my life who I'll have probably for the rest of my life and I still keep up with him now and every once in a while we'll send an email saying oh you know I just got a paper published or I just advanced to candidacy and and he's always really excited to hear those things so it's great so it's a, a good mentorship opportunity to have that and so for me it was just a style of education that was really worked and and I had absolutely considered going through the UC system but I just decided that I didn't want to learn calculus in a room with 300 other people. <laughs> that just wasn't going to work for me. I needed yeah. 20 people and a professor who was going to be there at my office hour, not, you know, a TA. And, yeah. Um, you know, not to say that TAs aren't good. I mean, I TA now, and I hope that my <laughs> students enjoy me. But, but I think that there's something to be said for for really getting a one-on-one interaction with your professors, and yeah. as opposed to having to kind of traffic through graduate students. So yeah. I think there are pros and cons of each. Um, kind of system, but you just have to decide what works for you and the way that you learn. And Mm -hmm. I just decided that a big lecture hall was not how I was going to learn well. That was not going to work for me. So, um, so I found that you can absolutely go to a private, you know, liberal arts college (laughs) and still get a very valuable science degree. Um, so that was great. And so after I graduated, um, I did a six month stint, um, at Amgen, which is a very large, um, international pharmaceutical company. Um, and there I was, essentially temping for someone who was on maternity leave. So that was nice because I kind of knew it was going to be a six-month thing. Um, Mm -hmm. But it was also a little bit scary because that was the fall of 2008 when um, the market kind of fell apart. And (laughs) um, and so a lot of people my year graduated (laughs) and then couldn't find jobs. And so I had this great job, but I knew there was an end date in sight. I was like, in January, I'm not going to have a job. Mm -hmm. So that was a little bit stressful. But... Um, Amgen was a really wonderful experience and really taught me a lot of humility in my science, which I think is very valuable. I think you come out of your undergraduate thinking you know everything, and I think it's valuable <laughs> to have a job that kind of teaches you to to kind of step back and watch and learn from people who've been doing it for years. And so yeah. I l- picked up a lot of technical skills there that um, that are invaluable to me now, you know, mm-hmm. years later. <clears throat> And then uh, after, when that six-month job was up, I was unemployed for about two and a half weeks, which was very lucky. Um, I landed a job at a small pharmaceutical, or not really pharmaceutical, a small biotechnology company called One Lambda, and they make HLA blood typing kits for um, organ transplantation. So whenever you go to um, either receive a trans, or whenever you go to receive a transplant, you have to be not only blood typed but tissue typed. Um, to prevent rejection of the organ. And so this mm-hmm. company that I worked for is one of the largest manufacturers of those testing kits. And I worked in the cell biology department. Okay, so, cool. Um, so yeah, and then I worked there for about a year and a half. And while there, I decided to go to graduate school. So I applied and went through the interview process. What made um, you want to apply to graduate school? So for me, it was really seeing that there's a clear glass ceiling for those that are at the technician level, which mm-hmm. is kind of a bachelor's degree. Um, and those that have advanced degrees, whether they be masters or, um, in a, for a large percentage of them, PhDs, uh-huh. um, where you can really go with your degree. Um, yeah. so I kind of felt like I might stay in industry. I might want to stay in industry, but I saw that for me to stay forever and be happy at 45, yeah. I needed to be able to move above the technician level. And to yeah. do that, you need an advanced degree. Um, and so I just decided that, you know, I could do the master's route, but why pay for a degree when I can get paid to go get a degree. Yeah. So that was what really drew me to the PhD in sciences. And to this day, when people ask what I do and I tell them I'm a PhD in sciences, and they go, oh gosh, what a mountain of debt. And I go, oh no, I get paid to go to school. Yeah. I, I get free tuition 
and I get a paycheck every month. Yeah. People look I at me think like everyone <laughs> knows that about yeah, they don't know the sciences. That, exactly. I mean, it's a huge, huge commitment and I would definitely say you shouldn't yeah. just go to graduate school because it's free. Yeah. It's a lot of work. <laughs> <laughs> it's a lot of work and it's a big commitment, but I think it doesn't, I think a lot fewer graduate students would come if we had to pay for it. Yeah. If we had to pay for it like med school students do, the payout at the end isn't nearly as great as it is for medical school. <laughs> uh-huh. So I think that's probably why, but, but we definitely, <laughs> it's a nice incentive. That's yeah. for sure. Yeah. Um, so I can, uh, it's nice to be able to afford to go to school and not feel like I'm putting my husband and I in the poor house <laughs> you yeah. know, that we can afford for me to, to step away from the wonderful paycheck I had as a technician mm-hmm. to, to really in the long run earn much more with my PhD. Yeah. So yeah, that's so kind of how you, I ended up here. <laughs> yeah. How did you decide where to apply to graduate school? So, um, for me, I, I decided pretty quickly and pretty early on in my graduate school search that I wanted to stay local. I'm a Southern California native. Uh-huh. Um, I grew up in Ventura County. And so I wanted to stay close where my family was, where my husband's family was. Um, and so I actually only applied to three universities. Okay. Um, I applied. Which th- is not the usual. I, <laughs> no. Most when I interviewed <laughs> people who were applying to 10 schools or 15 or 20 all across the country. Yeah. It was but similar I did to the same thing. I applied to two schools because I wanted to be near my family in Southern California and yeah, and I just decided it was kind of expensive to apply, and I decided it wasn't worth it to me to apply to places that I really couldn't see myself living, exactly, because that's really yeah. what you're doing, is you're picking your home for the next six months. Yeah, um, six so, years. Six years, sorry. Yeah. yeah, six years. God, six months, that'd be great. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> Good Lord. <laughs> um, if only. Um, I'm just dreaming now as a fourth year. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, so I applied to UC Irvine, obviously, and I applied also to UC Riverside, um, and they actually okay. gave me automatic admittance without interviewing me um, because they have a very new program a relatively new program especially at that time a few years ago it's a little bigger now but Uh um, they just now have built a medical school and so I think they were just trying to get graduate students interested at all so that was yeah very much so in a heavy recruitment mode and then I also applied at UCSD um, which is by all accounts a more impressive program than the UC Irvine program and I and actually got in there as well as getting in at UC Irvine but I decided after interviewing at both schools that I just didn't feel like I fit very well at UC San Diego. Uh-huh. Um, it just, uh, yeah, that's important too. It just it's... didn't. Yeah. Like, I mean, it's nice that it was prestigious, but, um, it just didn't feel, I don't know. I just did. It felt a little too competitive for me. And uh-huh. there's obviously a lot of competition in science, but I just didn't, I didn't like the idea of feeling like I even had to compete among my peers. I just felt like yeah. I fit in better in UC at UC, um, uh, Irvine. So that's kind of yeah, what, again, what my decision it's, it's made. Day in and day out. What environment do you want to be in? Exactly. <laughs> and I think there's something to be said for the benefits of graduate school being that we, not only do we pick where we're going to be to a certain extent, right? Assuming you get into multiple places, mm-hmm. but then you rotate in your first year and you pick your boss yeah. and you pick your coworkers. Like where yeah. else do you get to do that? I mean, obviously it's within reason. It's who has the funds to take graduate students, but you still get some sort of kind of say yeah. <laughs> in who your boss is. It is and, really and, nice. Yeah. Which is something you just don't get everywhere else. So I think sometimes graduate students forget that that's something that, you know, it's stressful your first year because you don't have a home, but I think you also get the benefit of getting to choose your home a little bit, or at least attempt to choose your home. Or just see if, if If you fit in well in different places. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So So the idea is that UC Irvine, every quarter you rotate through a different lab and you kind of get a couple months to really see if you like the experiments, if you like the people there and if you're going to work well with the boss and you know, try a couple labs out just to see what might be your best fit. Um, some schools don't do that. Some schools you just apply straight to your boss, and if you happen to not get along with them or anything like that, you're stuck for the next four years. So yeah, it's too late. And I, I think, think it depends as well on the on the department that you're in because I know at UC um, at UCI in the Ecology and Evolution Department they join labs in their first year and they come mm-hmm. in in a lab, whereas in our departments and in yeah. our like umbrella style program where we have access to multiple departments, we get to do this rotation system. Yeah. Um, and that was something that really attracted me to graduate study as I felt like there's a lot of kind of flexibility and opportunity to kind of find a good fit for you. And, 
And for me, it really came down to finding a place where I felt like I could work well and get and, and be supported and mentored by my boss. Uh-huh. Um, and then I had coworkers that I enjoyed being around. I mean, your yeah. coworkers kind of become your family. <laughs> and so, of course, they drive you crazy like your family does. If you can imagine having, you know, <laughs> annoying brothers and sisters, that's kind of what your lab mates become. And, of course, you love them dearly and, and you'll do anything to help them out. But you also kind of want to throttle them sometimes <laughs> when they use things on your bench or, you know, or don't put something away but yeah it's but like I, yeah it's like having a roommate or it yeah. is yeah very much so and we Family I member. mean it's funny the postdoc that I work very closely with we joke that we see each other more than we see our respective spouses <laughs> so he's my work husband <laughs> because That's we see awesome. we spend way more time together than we yeah. do with our spouses yeah. and it's just the truth it's part of the it's part of the deal and so to get the opportunity to really pick those people and pick your mentor mm-hmm. um, who's really going to help carry you through the graduate process is really important um, and I think a lot of first years put a lot of focus on what kind of scientists they want to be and what kind of science they want to do. Yeah. And I think research. that that's, yeah. And I think that's a nice idea. And I think if you're really committed, you know, like I really want to study cancer, like that's great. I mean, mm-hmm. studying cancer is a really important thing, but I would not forget the importance of having a boss that you, that can really take you through the graduate program because all the great research in the world is not going to bring you any kind of satisfaction when you're yeah. trying to advance to candidacy and you, you can't get your boss to talk to you for five minutes, yeah. you know? And, and I or think you're stressed out cause you don't know what to do and you're not getting good guidance or any exactly. guidance or you've spent six months, you know, going in circles because you mm-hmm. just couldn't get, um, five minutes of attention. And, and I think that there are bosses and especially PIs that range, from being on one end of the spectrum in terms of like on your back all the time and always interested in what you're doing (laughs) and kind of micromanaging (laughs) to bosses that you don't see for three months at a time because they're out at NIH in Maryland doing, Uh you know, panels and things like that. And so they're just not around, they're traveling. So I think you, you have to see kind of what mentorship style works for you. But, but I think it's important when you're picking a lab and when you're entering graduate school to be aware of, you know, there's a lot of, a lot in science that, will probably interest you and mm-hmm. and a lot of subjects that you will find yourself becoming passionate about yeah. because it's your project and yeah. it, it doesn't really matter kind of what the science is which that sounds kind of weird but to be honest I didn't pick my lab because we study something that I I just can't live without yeah. knowing the answers to that's not why I picked it I picked yeah. it because I wanted to work for my boss yeah. um, and so I think that that's a really important thing that I think sometimes young scientists I mean, I'm st- I still consider myself a very young scientist, but scientists in their first year of graduate work kind of don't realize, yeah. and, and you want to try to realize that early so yeah, that you pick, pick rotations where you can see yourself with a mentor, maybe more than the science that you just can't live without. Because yeah. I think you'd be surprised by what it is you'd, you'd find interesting mm-hmm. when you're in a happy place. Yeah, I think that's a good point. So then, uh, so did you pretty much know after your rotation in your current lab that you wanted to join and yeah. it all smoothly. <laughs> yeah. I mean, my first rotation as a graduate student, um, to be honest, I was pretty miserable. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, my first quarter in graduate school was very hard. I had just gotten married. We had just moved oh, out wow. here away from my family. My dad was actually, um, sick for a little while. So that was very stressful. Oh. Um, and then the, my rotation was challenging. It was in a lab that had kind of a strict hierarchy, uh-huh. Um, which I was new to and, and didn't quite understand. Yeah. And the, rota- the graduate student that I was kind of paired with and working with, I think was a little bipolar maybe. Oh, <laughs> she, no. You know, some day, <laughs> and she, for the most part, she was a very nice person, but it was just hard to know which version of her I was going to get oh, every day. And so it was yeah. just a very stressful environment. She was yeah, very stressed and her stressful. stress made me stressed. And mm-hmm. it was the first time being back in a classroom in two years and I was kind of trying to remember how to be a student and and the whole thing was just very overwhelming and so long about December of that first year I was calling my best friends and going oh god this was a horrible mistake (laughs) I should have I need to quit this is horrible but um but thankfully you know they all kind of said you've got to ride it out see how you feel in a couple months this is maybe just this rotation and my second rotation was was really wonderful and I made some really great friends and I had some great lab mates and so that and I felt like I was doing well and I was being successful so that mm-hmm. was really great yeah encouraging. And, then, <laughs> and then my third rotation was in the lab that I'm in now and I kind of just fell in love with my boss she's and I tell this whenever we get recruitment students to UCI <laughs> that I have the best boss in the, in the whole department if, if not the whole school and I would bet my <laughs> life on it 
She's wonderful, awesome. and I would follow her to the ends of the earth. I mean, if she, you know, if she told me to jump off a bridge, I'd ask her how high, and if she wanted me to get a running start, <laughs> you know, because I That's just, awesome. I have a lot of faith in her, and, and I trust that she has my best interest at heart, which I, I really appreciate. So even when she's driving me crazy, I'm like, it's for my own good. Like, <laughs> she's learning something about <laughs> yes. myself. I don't know what I'm learning, but I'll figure it out. Yeah. So I definitely, I definitely fell in love with her. And then I also, I mean, the subject was really um, interesting to me. We're a host pathogen lab um, and mm -hmm. we study a human parasite. And, and I'd only, I came to UC Irvine um, to do virology, to study viruses, because that's what yeah, I had done as an undergrad. Yeah, and I just really, I've always kind of been into bugs and, you know, pathogens <laughs> and that kind of thing has always kind of been something I was interested in. And, uh -huh. um, and so this was really more of a, it's kind of really more of an immunology lab, but we study how the body responds to this parasite. Um, and so I spent the whole rotation trying to learn immunology, having not taken it ever, uh -huh. which was crazy because anyone <laughs> who's studied any kind of immunology will, will know that it's alphabet soup. It's just yeah. all these acronyms. Nothing very makes sense. It's very complicated. There's lots of different cells that do lots of things and everything is very context dependent. And it's just, it's just, it's scary, very scary. <laughs> so yeah. I, would, I would come yes. out of lab meeting during the rotation and I'd be, have a whole list of words to look up. Like I'd be <laughs> Wikipediaing words to try to speak the language and, and really show her that, that even though I wasn't trained in it, that I could learn it, yeah. that, that I wanted to earn my spot. And, and I, I just knew showing that sort of passion is just as good as if you came in knowing all that stuff. <laughs> exactly. Because, and, and I ended up, I remember when I, after having gotten, gotten the job in the lab, I asked her, I said, you've got it. Well, I kind of joked, you've got to be crazy. I don't, I've never done immunology and you took me in your lab. And she said, when I joined my immunology student, my, my immunology lab as a graduate student, I had never taken immunology. Oh, wow. So she took her like first big immunology class as a graduate student. And now she's a PI in that subject, yeah. you know? So, so I think she really saw that I was kind of busting my butt <laughs> to, yeah. to kind of learn the material and show that I cared. And she's like, you can learn anything as long yeah. as you want to try. So, determined. Yeah. Yeah. And I knew when I rotated in the lab in the spring that two other graduate students had rotated through before me and there was only one spot. Uh oh. And I, <laughs> and I didn't want to go to my first lab because I wasn't very happy there. And the second yeah. lab had originally had money to fund me and then had kind of lost that funding. Uh, so that was no longer going to work. So if I didn't get into that last lab, I was either going to rotate again in the summer or leave. Yeah. Um, and so I did my darndest to be the best graduate student she had ever seen. And I think the most important thing that I did was that I, towards the end of my rotation, when I really knew I wanted to be there, I told her that I yeah. scheduled a meeting with her and I was very clear and frank and said, I want to work for you. I like it here. I like working for you. I feel like I'm doing well here. I'm yeah. passionate about the subject. And I was mm -hmm. kind of very, I wouldn't say forceful, but I was, you know, clear and yeah. you know, straightforward about my intentions. And That's... I think that that maybe pushed me kind of ahead in her eyes because I was very clear about what I wanted yeah. and people who know what they want will work hard to get it. And, yeah. and so I kind of, I feel like that's something that, again, other first, first years sometimes are hesitant to say what they want. Yeah. And I think that you have to remember that to a certain extent, you are competing against your peers for spots. And yeah, if there's you, only one spot. <laughs> yeah, and with funding getting tighter every year, yeah. if you're a first-year student, you need to be passionate about what you do. You need to be the best rotation student to go through every single lab that you're in. And then yeah. you need to make a decision and be strong in that decision and yeah. feel confident in that decision because that's the only way you're going to get a spot where you want a spot. Yeah. So, and that's another point that you bring up about rotations. It's like you have to choose wisely and, and, you know, take the time to figure out if that's the lab you want to be in, but you also have to think about, you know, how many students they're going to take, how much, how many they can afford and factor that in because, yeah, because you can be stuck at the end of the year of the rotation year without <clears throat> a lab. Some, some PIs take, 10 rotation students for one spot. So you have to factor in all that stuff too, I think is important when you're deciding who to rotate with. If you can find someone who, you know, is taking two students and is only rotating four, then you go there instead of, you know, maybe a more popular lab that's only going to take one. Yeah. Um, and I think, I think that goes with the decision-making process when you're choosing between the hot new stem cell biology lab or the hot new, you know, neurobiology lab that everyone's yeah. really excited about this really famous professor 
And you may be missing a professor down the hall who's yeah. going to mentor you and be invested in you that's maybe brand new. But, I mean, I think they're, yeah. for example, my the PI that I work for, she's relatively young. She's not tenured yet, so she's she's getting close. She's going to be in her tenure year very soon. Um, but when you're with a new professor, you get the benefit of their, um, of their startup funds. Yeah. Um, and they can also apply for all kinds of fellowships as PIs, as young investigator PIs, that you're more senior famous, been in the business for 20 years, PIs can't mm-hmm. apply for. And so mm-hmm. I think that there are some benefits to being with young PIs. Also, I think that younger PIs remember what it was like to be a graduate student. Yeah, um, they're closer to it. Yeah. And they're not so stuck in their ways. Sometimes the older PIs are like, well, when we did it, we purified our virus using this kind <laughs> of gradient and that's the only way you can yeah. do it. Even though there might be a an equally valid and more yeah. modern way to do it, but they're cheaper, not maybe faster. It's cheaper, faster. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so I think that when you get a younger PI, you sometimes get some of the benefit of that, um, of that youth. Mm-hmm. There's also obviously big risks when you join a lab and with a non-tenured professor, because yeah. if they don't, if they go into their tenure year and you're still in their lab and they don't get tenure, <laughs> yeah. you're, you either move with them or yeah. you're done or you get absorbed into another lab. I mean, there's yeah. definitely risks with joining labs like that. So I think those are all Plus things. They're kind should... of learning how to mentor as Absolutely. they're, you know, learning how to run their own lab. So you're, it's exciting to be involved with that, but it's also, not, yeah. not as stable as a lab that's been around for 20 years. So. Yeah, and you often don't have the benefit of um, taking on a project that has well-defined experiment experimental procedures mm-hmm. where you can learn from a yes. previous graduate student or a postdoc. So in my case, my project was, before I started it, an idea on a piece of paper. It was, this would be cool if we could answer <laughs> this question. But it was basically in a list of 10 or 15 projects that we talked about, and I kind of went, uh, that one. <laughs> to be honest, I really didn't, because I didn't know, I mean, at the end of 10 weeks, like, how much do you really, really yeah. know? And so I kind of guessed and picked, and um, I started a project that um, I no one in my lab had any experience doing. I ended up working with some bioengineers. I, I collaborate with bioengineers um, on my project, and so it was kind of an uphill slog for a little bit, but I then mm-hmm. ended up being incredibly lucky in my project and have been yeah. able to be quite prolific, which I feel very lucky for, and I do my science rain dance to the science gods <laughs> and thank them yeah, for their generosity. <laughs> yeah. But um, but I think that that's something that, you know, you take a risk when you take on a project that your lab has never done anything like that before, and yeah. so I think when you join a young lab, a lo- everyone's project is kind of like that because yeah. there isn't anything there isn't. to really base yeah. your work off of. Mm-hmm. Um, but in big, in bigger, older labs, you often get a project handed to you. And so you get a little bit less say in the story that's being told. And so yeah. I think there are pluses and minuses to both, but yeah. it's something to be considered. I think you're right. And so who is your PI? Do you want to tell us about your lab now? Kind of just an overview of what you do in your department and your PI? Yeah, absolutely. So I work for Melissa Ledoen at UCI, and we're in the Department of Molecular Biology and Biochemistry. Woohoo! Woohoo, yeah, (laughs) MB&B. So I came in through the Cellular Molecular Biosciences Umbrella Program, which feeds multiple departments. Yes. Um, But that's the department that I chose to join. and we work on host pathogen interactions, and in particular, we're interested in a protozoan pathogen called Toxoplasma gondii. It's related to malaria, um, and it's Ooh. the pathogen a lot of people have heard about um, whenever pregnant women are told to avoid the kitty litter. It's that parasite. <laughs> <laughs> That's what you're trying to avoid. Um, and so, uh, yeah, so my project in particular is we're interested in... Um, looking at how the parasite disseminates, so how it moves and spreads through the body, especially um, in particular via the circulatory system. Um, And so um, we use a microfluidic system, which is uh, something that was developed by the bioengineers that we collaborate with here at UCI. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's kind of a way for us to model and mimic um, a blood vessel. And I can culture endothelial cells in in those micro channels. And endothelial cells are the cells that line your blood vessels. Mm -hmm. And so then basically I, I have this this channel made up of a glass bottom, which Mm -hmm. is a glass slide, and then the top of the channel is made out of this polymer, and I can put human cells in it and then flow through my parasites and also infected um, white blood cells and ask how those parasites or those infected cells interact with um, the cells lining that fake blood vessel, Um, and I can watch them in real time using using a microscope. 
Um, and so that's largely what my work has been. It's really yeah, cell biology. <laughs> videos of yours at a, at a talk. It's really cool to be able to see the yes. pathogen attached to a human cell and kind of wiggle into it or through it or yeah. So really cool. Yeah, it's really interesting, and I and I really enjoy doing it. It's really more cell biology than anything else. I like to yeah. watch how cells interact with each other, and so I end up using um, a lot of uh, computer programs to do tracking analysis. A lot, some of uh -huh. it's manual, and some of it's done um, through automated tracking, which uses all kinds of motion algorithms and stuff to to track things in real time. But I spend a lot of time staring at a computer screen, <laughs> analyzing videos of moving parasites and. Um, it's very exciting. The motility of the parasite um, is reasonably well characterized. They perform something called gliding motility, which is a very distinct form of motility. Uh -huh. um, and they basically twirl like a corkscrew, <laughs> but the parasite is curved like a banana. It's, that's kind of its shape, um, uh -huh. it has, and it has a ri rigid arc, um, rigid cytoskeleton. So it ro if you can imagine a banana rotating <laughs> like a corkscrew <laughs> down its like long axis, that's kind of how the parasite moves. Yeah. Um, so it's really cool and fun to tr track. And so um, uh, earlier in 2013, um, I was able to co-first author a paper on the project, and that was really all on infected um, immune cells and how their interactions with the blood vessels change mm -hmm. um, when they're infected, which is super interesting. Yeah. And we um, have been able to show kind of changes in these adhesion, mo in adhesion molecule expression, which is very exciting. And then um, I actually just this morning received reviews back on a paper <laughs> that I submitted um, just before Christmas um, that uh, I'm going to hopefully turn around and fingers crossed it will be accepted in the next month or so. Um, on a bunch of work That's I've great, done. That's <laughs> Thank really you. Yeah. Exciting. <laughs> yeah, on uh, looking just at, at the extracellular parasites themselves. So just the parasites, no immune cell, just the uh -huh. parasite interacting with the blood vessel wall, and um, and and it seems that the flow really does make a difference. And so a lot of the times when people look at how cells interact with each other, they do it in these static culture dishes, which mm -hmm. is nice because it's controllable, but it's not really representative of what's happening in the bloodstream. Right? We know our yeah. circulation is under this you've got a push of blood flow all the time and so uh -huh. what does that mean for those interactions and and so the whole point of having this system is really to be able to better mimic what's happening inside an animal yeah or a person that's really interesting yeah cool and that's that seems really fast to me that if you submitted in December to already get <laughs> notes back in January, I mean, yes. I don't really know, but, but yeah, would you yeah. say that's pretty quick? That's very fast. That's one of the things that this journal, the journal we submitted to is um, M-Bio, Molecular Biology. Um, it's an online-only journal, so they don't actually have a print version of their journal, which is kind of the way that journals are going yeah, nowadays it's, because it's just so much less expensive and no one really buys the print journals anymore. And reads it front, you know, cover to cover. You just exactly. find the papers you're interested in and read them online. Exactly. <laughs> Yeah. So they don't even have a printed version of their journal. And so one of the things that they pride themselves on is a very quick review process and a, and a quick revision time. So what that means, though, is if your paper isn't really where they need it to be to publish it, mm -hmm. rather than giving you a big list of things to do to, to bring it there, it'll just get rejected. Uh -huh. <laughs> so they're tri what they Which call triage is better yeah, for both parties. Then you but. go to a different journal. Exactly. Yeah. So, so, um, we submitted, uh, December 20th and, um, we thought with the holidays, we might get delayed a little more than a month, but they try to get back to you within a month. Okay. Um, and so we got back, they got back to us this morning, which is just about a month later. Yeah. Um, and then I have exactly 30 days to do whatever they asked me to do or address the reviewer comments. Uh -huh. And then, uh, they will either choose to accept the manuscript with whatever we've done or or not but um, I, su I suspect will be accepted assuming that we can address all of their comments which yeah. hopefully we can That's so, <laughs> so exciting so it'll be a crazy 30 days but um, <laughs> but I'm excited to kind of get that second first author publication that's really critical I think as a graduate yeah. student to be able to get I mean you have to get one first author publication that's part of getting your PhD mm -hmm. but I think most PhD students and most PIs I think would love to have their graduate students get two that's really yeah. that's really optimal so that makes me feel reasonably confident about graduating on time yeah and <laughs> it's inspiring good. to know that it's possible <laughs> yeah well again I, I put a lot of a stock in the fact that I've been very lucky but I also think it's important as a graduate student that when you've been lucky and you get good data that you chase that data down so all it takes is one really good experiment yeah to, to really get to see that there's something there and then it's Hit your you job to right chase direction. it. Yeah. yeah. And so, you know, a lot of, a, a lot of graduate students 
sometimes, sometimes graduate students who haven't been lucky say, oh, you know, you got your paper because you were lucky. And, and I can absolutely appreciate that luck plays a part in it. I could mm -hmm. have developed our microfluidic system and seen nothing. Yeah. There could have been nothing interesting there, and then I would have wasted six months setting it up just for nothing. And that yeah. happens. That absolutely happens. Mm -hmm. um, I was really lucky, and I saw a phenotype, and I chased that phenotype yeah. hard and fast. And, and, and so I think it should be noted that it, it's a combination of the two. And so yeah, luck if, and hard work, yeah, really hard work. <laughs> yeah, and you can't be lucky if you're not doing experiments. So you have exactly, to be yeah. actively working really hard in the lab and being thoughtful about the data that you're seeing to catch that luck, right? Yeah, it's like catching I that agree. lightning in a bottle. But if you don't have 300 bottles open, you're never going to catch yeah, that lightning. Luck alone right? won't get you anywhere. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, so I definitely, again, I do my rain dance. I thank the science gods, but I'm also <laughs> always on the lookout for a phenotype because yeah. once you get one, you can chase it and, and put together a paper. Um, and I also think that it's also a testament to my boss being very thoughtful about how we design our experiments mm -hmm. to maximize finding things. Yeah. You know, you, you don't want to corner yourself into only being able to see one or two phenotypes. You yeah. want to allow yourself the ability to see lots of things. Um, and then once you see something, being thoughtful about setting up experiments that are going into your paper. Yeah. So don't set up experiments that you don't intend to be either published or get you towards an, a published experiment. Yeah. Because if that's not where you're going, that's it's tangential. You're moving sideways. You're not moving yeah. forward. And so I think that's something and that she's really, really taught those, me. Yeah, and you just really need those papers published to absolutely. get to move forward for both your PI and yourself. And yourself, absolutely. It's, so it's very important. Yeah, very important. <laughs> I, didn't, I don't think I realized how important it was when I came into grad school. I was just like, oh, do some great research. It'll be so interesting. And then, yeah, I'll publish a paper. But then you start working, and you're like, oh, everything relies on published papers, the funding, you know, without absolutely. funding, you can't do anything. And Yeah, it's, yeah. it's kind of a vicious cycle, but I think once you kind of recognize that that's what you're doing, I think you just, you use that information to be focused and move forward and, and make sure that you're not wasting time on things that are only taking you sideways. You yeah. want things that are going to move you forward and in depth. And so yeah. that's kind of something that, that my boss has taught me and that I think has helped me whenever I'm designing exper an experiment, I'm picturing how it is this is going to get graphed when it goes into the figure. How is this going to fit with another set of experiments I've done? Uh -huh. How does this make a story? Yeah, um, and I think thinking about your research in terms of the story that you're going to tell mm -hmm. is important because if you're, the individual experiments you're doing don't, aren't cohesive and don't tell a story, you're not writing a paper, Yeah, you know? It'll and be really so really hard to cobble it together. Exactly. And, and so again, once you, you have to kind of have a phenotype first. And so when you're first looking for things, a lot of your experiments are going to feel like they're moving left and they're moving right, but you're not really going forward. And, mm -hmm. and that's all right. But once you, you kind of get something to grasp onto is some sort of phenotype, something interesting that happens when things are infected, but not infected, uh -huh. that's when you need to start thinking, okay, well, figure one is going to be this piece and figure two is going to be that piece. And yeah. then kind of starting to work on your experiments as if you're planning to write this up, because that's ultimately what you're trying to do. Even yeah. if you're just, one panel and one figure in, you should be trying to plan like you're going to be writing it up. And that's something that my PI does a lot is we start putting together f what we call figure outlines uh -huh. before we have all of our figures done. So for the paper that I just submitted in December, I have figure outlines that I started in June, you know, that uh -huh. were, okay, I've got most of a figure one, but I think we're missing something that addresses this piece yeah. and kind of a figure two. And, yeah, that's smart. You know, and so even if it's only one or two figures, you just keep building, keep building, yeah. keep building. It keeps you on track. <laughs> exactly. And it makes sure that every day that you're in the lab and you're working on an experiment, it's pushing you forward towards that goal of completing the story. Yeah. Um, but it also, because they're not completed outlines, it gives you the freedom to find something new that yeah. kind of goes, oh, well, this is this would be a great figure six that really is this extra thing we didn't know was happening, but it's uh -huh. also happening, and oh, this is really interesting. And I think that that's, it's having that gives me something to grasp onto and uh -huh. makes me, makes it very clear when I'm making strides forward, which yeah. for me is, which is nice. hugely <laughs> helpful. Yeah. Because sometimes you get lost. A lot of times you feel like you're just doing so many things and you're not sure yeah. how they're connected, so that seems like a good idea. So that's great. I'm very excited for you to get your second paper, <laughs> Thank paper you. published. Is uh, 
what's your author name or whatever if people want to look you up oh, on PubMed? So it's Catherine Harker. Okay. No, so no middle initial? S. Harker, I guess. Okay. Catherine S. Harker. There we go. Yeah. And then I have one publication under um, Catherine A. Snyder, but that's just my second author as an undergrad, so that's not a very exciting paper. <laughs> oh, is that your maiden name? My last, yeah, my maiden oh. name is Snyder. Yeah. Oh, nice. That's so. interesting. I never thought about how... If yeah, you so did I publish chose... a lot before you got married, you yes. kind of have to So, for example, my decide. boss, yeah, my boss is, goes under her maiden name. Ladoan is her uh -huh. maiden name. Um, and she took her husband's last name as her middle name. Uh, oh. And vice versa. He, her husband is a professor here at UCI in public health, and he oh. has her maiden that. name as his middle name. That's nice. Yeah, Why because not? they had both published yeah. before they so had you met wanna, yeah. yeah, keep that name going, but exactly. that's really nice. That's yeah. a good idea. Since I had only published one kind of measly paper, <laughs> I mean, I was, I'm very proud of it, but it's, it, yeah. it's not at the caliber that the papers are now that I work on, and so I just yeah. felt like it was okay. for And I, and I don't intend to do research professionally, so I, I felt like it was okay to not have that one yeah. in there. Cool. So I want to talk about kind of I know we all deal with a lot of stresses in the lab and just if there are certain parts of working in a lab or parts of the research that are really stressful to you and how you relieve that stress. <laughs> Any tips for fellow <laughs> graduate students or really anyone? Um, so I guess, I mean, I guess it's to harp on something that they kind of tell us all the time, but I think work-life balance. And I think this uh -huh. is true for people outside of graduate studies, yeah. uh, absolutely. But I think work-life balance is very important. Um, and I think... The sciences especially tends to select for kind of type A personalities uh -huh. who can be kind of hyper obsessive about things. And, yeah. um, and so we can kind of get caught up in our own heads. And I think that it's, for me, it's really important to kind of schedule my relaxation time. I'm one of those crazies that has a Google calendar that's color coded <laughs> <laughs> and I put my experiments into my Google calendar so that oh, I have, wow. so I can make sure that I'm going to get to yeah. my seminars on time and class or if I'm TAing. And so my whole life is kind of scheduled and, uh -huh. but that brings me a sense of like calm when yeah. I can see it all organized. Um, and so, you know when you're going to be able to not think about work. And exactly. Not. So I try to schedule like, okay, I have a hair appointment on this Saturday or I'm going to yeah. meet my mom for lunch or, you know, whatever it is I've planned that's for fun. We have dinner with friends. I put it on my calendar so that I can um, not only plan around it, but also get to look forward to yeah, it. Yeah. Um, so that's really important for me. I also find that, um, list writing is very powerful for me. So mm -hmm. I always have, um, a, like a kind of to-do list of like, what are my goals for today? Um, cause I like, I get a lot of satisfaction being able to cross things off. Uh -huh. Um, it, relieve some of my stress to see that I'm making progress, even if it's just on little things like yeah. I need to order a new bottle of something mm -hmm. or I need to prepare for my meeting or I, you know, and so it gives me an ability to check things off as I go. Yeah. Um, and I think that that's really powerful to not only keep me on track, but also to make me feel like I'm getting things accomplished because sometimes in research, you feel very overwhelmed and yeah. like you're doing 50,000 things going on and you're like, did I remember everything? Did I remember that? Did I do that? Exactly. And sometimes I think you no. even find yourself like doing so many things that I often feel like the road runner right after, not the road runner, sorry, the coyote right after he's run off the cliff, but his legs are still going Yeah. like, and he is floating <laughs> in the air and his legs are going, but he's not going anywhere. That's sometimes how graduate school feels is you feel like I'm doing all of these things, but I don't feel like I'm going anywhere. I'm just floating in air yeah. and, and you're just waiting to fall. <laughs> and, and so I think with me having those lists and kind of every day going, okay, I can't prepare for everything all the time, but what can I do today? Yeah. And so I'm, I, I remember focus on the, what you can do. Yeah, yeah. I remember specifically when I was preparing for my um, advancement to candidacy exam, mm -hmm. the couple of weeks before that, I was just, I was petrified and terrified and I just felt like I'm never going to know everything and they're going to ask me something and I'm not going to know and yeah. they're going to fail me and I would just get like really yeah. overwhelmed very quickly. And I felt like, okay, it was really helpful when I walk in every day, if I could have a list of what can I get done today? Mm -hmm. what, what can I, when I go home and have dinner with my husband, go, at least I got that done. Uh -huh. And sometimes for me personally, it was just like, I made time to go to the gym or I made time to walk the dog or I made time to get those buffers made or to yeah. passage my cells or, you know, sometimes it's really little things or just analyze that last piece of data, you know? And so I think for me, list making has given me a sense of control in, yeah. in a very hectic world. And yeah. so that's very helpful. Um, I'm trying to think if there was anything else. 
I guess that's probably the two major things for me. Yeah. Oh, and then the other thing that I do, and this is something that I think a lot of graduate students feel guilty about sometimes, but I also, I greatly prioritize getting my own personal time because I feel like it makes me a better graduate student when I'm here. Uh-huh. And so, um, I try to at least for one day a week, not do anything related to science. I don't read a paper. I don't think about my project. Yeah. I don't go into the lab. I don't do anything. I That's sit nice. on the couch all day in yeah. my pajamas and, and, <laughs> and eat cereal out of the box and watch TV or whatever, go yeah. shopping with friends or try to get away. And, and, Every week, I can't always do it every week, and I'm always sad when I can't. But yeah, but I try not important. to feel yeah. I try not to feel guilty about it. To go, it's okay for me to have a Saturday off, you know. Yeah. And I think that that's um, that's important. And thankfully, I have a boss who who also thinks that that's important and yeah. feels that we deserve those kinds of things. And and I try to go on vacations every year. I've managed to be able to to take vacations and take days off around Christmas and holidays and. And I think that that's valuable and you shouldn't feel guilty about that. Yeah. You're a human being. And, it's, and so, I think, it's so funny, though, because I feel like most graduate students just feel pressure not to ever take any time off. Yeah. And if you do, it's like we're programmed to just feel guilty about it the whole time. It's like you can't even enjoy your vacation. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> and so I think that that's I know when, I, when I've said that to graduate students like, oh, yeah, I try to take one day off a week. They look at me like I'm crazy. But. At the same time, I look at what I've been able to accomplish. Yeah, saying, it's been very... You know, it's, the, the trick is that when I'm here, I'm all business all the time. My, I'm highly scheduled. I get everything done. So when yeah. I'm on campus, I'm very busy. Um, but I think that allows me the time to separate from campus. Yeah. Um, and something else that I guess I kind of goes with the list making, but something that I think allows me to be successful and get a lot of things done is that I don't ever come in on a Monday and just sit around going, ah, what am I doing this week? Like I'm, I'm always planning a week ahead. And, Uh and of course you have to be flexible because experiments change, cells die, you know, things happen. Mm -hmm. But I always try to be a step ahead, a few days ahead, preparing for okay, once this, once I get this data, what's the next piece that I need and already Uh start planning that experiment, have the protocol written out because you don't ever want to find yourself on a Wednesday morning kind of twiddling your thumbs because you didn't plan an experiment. And so then you have to go in Saturday because you sat around on Wednesday. I would rather sit around on Saturday than (laughs) than sit around on a Wednesday. And so, um, and I, I don't know if that's just the product of like, so the, for the parasite that I work with, we have to grow them in other cells. And so mm-hmm. I have to plan my experiments so that I have parasites on the day that I need them. Yeah. But um, I think it's important just to be successful in general that you're kind of regularly planning and scheduling. And I think the graduate students that that don't plan well tend to be the ones that have to spend more time in the lab because yeah. they're just not... As they're efficient. Not, not as efficient. They're not yeah. stacking their experiments. They're not, you know well, this one incubates for three hours so I can start this other thing. And yeah. if you didn't plan ahead, you wouldn't be ready for that. And so I just think that that's Yeah, I think that's important. That's and I agree. It's, I mean, I, sometimes, yeah, I don't feel efficient, but it's nice when you are efficient and you know that you're utilizing your time the best you can so that, yeah, you're not wasting any time. Doing yeah, anything. and I feel like when you are efficient like that, then you get to feel, you get to feel proud of that efficiency and then you've earned the right to take your Saturday, yeah, you know? And so I always try to do my oh, best to earn my Saturday off. And when I'm, when I'm on my Saturday off, I'm going to go see a movie. We're going to go to dinner and we, you know, I try to do fun things to kind of keep myself separated. And I find that I retain my sanity <laughs> a little better. <laughs> That's so, important. It's a difficult so thing to do. Sometimes. Is, yeah. So give yourself permission yeah. to be sane. <laughs> I like that. Sounds good. All right. And so what is next for you? What plans do you have for the future? Um, so I guess um, I'm interested in, in teaching and, and working in education rather than pursuing a career in, in research. Mm-hmm. Um, I enjoy research and, and um, I have an aptitude for it, but it just doesn't bring me the kind of joy that working with students does. I've really enjoyed um, my opportunity or the opportunities I've had to TA here at UCI and interact with students, Mm -hmm. um, as well as training an undergrad who worked with me for um, about a year and a half. So I think that that's kind of what I would prefer to do. And specifically, I'm interested in teaching at the community college level. Um, I just think it's important that we have good quality, highly trained teachers that want to be there. Um, So that's something that I'd like to do. And I think it's a really really great diverse population of students, um, diverse not only in ethnicity, but also in socioeconomic status, age, experience, education level. I mean, those things are all very diverse at that level. And so I think that um, it's a great population that really could really use, I think, 
good professors, um, and I think that that's a place where I could really um, enjoy interacting with the students. And I, to in, in general, enjoy that level of the material. I think uh-huh. the entry-level biology really stuff is really that. interesting. Yeah, yeah I mean, too. I think it's cool. Yeah. And, I think mitosis deserves its day. It's interesting, <laughs> you know, even though I don't study it, it doesn't mean that it isn't worth you know, yeah. teaching. And so, um, I'm excited to, to venture into that. So I'm going to be participating in a teaching program this next year, which will allow me That's to awesome. work with a, um, a community college professor mentor, uh, for a year and, and kind of use them to, to learn about what teaching is yeah, like in that environment. Yeah. yeah, that's great. Cause I think that teaching and TAing all that, I had such a hard time. I found it really difficult. I just, even if I understood a concept, it was really hard to communicate that to other students. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, you kind of realize that all these professors, they don't really have training in education or teaching. They're no. smart. They got their PhDs. They did their postdocs, but it's a whole nother skill set to know how to communicate these ideas, you know, and concepts and just ways of thinking about science to students. So I think that's great if you, you know, enjoy doing that and you're good at it. I think that's awesome to do that because, yeah, that's definitely needed. <laughs> yeah, and I think, I don't know, I come from a family of teachers. I said earlier, my dad was a high school teacher for years. My mom was, was trained as an educator as well. And mm-hmm. so I kind of come from a family of teachers and I think to a certain extent, teaching is a little bit of a, an art, the way that you know, a lot of things are. It's kind of a natural skill set, and then you obviously yeah. have training and, and, and in pedagogy and things that kind of make you a better teacher, but there's a certain amount of kind of a knack for it, you mm-hmm. know, and I think that I'm a very, I'm a people person. I enjoy being around students, um, and I think I yeah, really... Yeah, you're affecting a lot of people when you teach. I mean, that's, absolutely. you know, a new group of students and every quarter or every semester, and it's... That's one of my favorite things about teaching the entry-level courses is um, not only are you impacting students um, who might want to continue in biology, but there's plenty of students that will come through an entry-level biology course and go on to become, you know, nursing majors or um, other health science majors or ophthalmologists or or ophthalmologists or dentists. I mean, there's so so much more than just future research scientists, and I think Mm -hmm. that um, one really, really great entry-level teacher can really open a student's eyes to um, a whole career field that they may not have considered in, in the same way that one really terrible teacher in a subject can really yeah. turn a student off from yeah, that subject. Yeah, whole and, subject. And... Yeah, and so I think that if there is a way that I can impact students and, and help them kind of find the love of biology, I think that that would be really wonderful. And yeah, even if they don't go into a career with that, just absolutely that they can appreciate getting that it. curiosity in nature and life is... Yeah, it's great. I yeah, think. so hopefully that, and, and the other thing I think about, this is something that I think the further in my graduate career I go, the, the more I'm appreciating this, but that when you choose your career, also choosing a lifestyle, you're choosing the life that you want to live. Mm-hmm. Um, and for me, teaching allows me a lot of flexibility. It'll give me the opportunity to start a family and, yeah. um, and, and have, a, I think, a better work-life balance than some other careers that, yeah. that can come out of a PhD. And so, um, and I don't know if this is just, um, from watching my family or, or being married and, and talking about this with my husband, but I think that being very thoughtful about your career choice, not just because you have dreams and aspirations and what you want to do, but also practically what you want your day-to-day life to be like yeah. <laughs> is really important. It's, this, it's, remind, it's kind of similar to the whole when you pick a lab, you want to pick a boss that you want to be with, not just the science. For me, the career is also a very similar thing. I want to pick a life yeah. that I can be happy with every day and feel like I'm doing something that's worthwhile and that brings me joy, but also mm-hmm. provides me with a life that I enjoy living. Um, and I think that for me, teaching really does that. There's a lot of flexibility in teaching and, and that's something that's really valuable to me. Yeah, um, that's awesome. I think that's great. Um, and I think it's a kind of a career path that's not talked about as much or at all when you're getting your PhD in biology or, or cell biology. <clears throat> and I thought it was interesting to kind of think about how, you know, most people come in, they're going to do their PhD, they're going to do their postdoc, they're going to be a PI, they're going to be a professor, kind of follow that path, and that's kind of drilled into all of our heads, but just to realize that there are tons of other directions to go, and, you know, you just, as with undergrad, you just kind of follow your interests and see where you want to go, 
Um, but I think that's great that you know that about yourself and now you're doing, so you got to, what, what is the teaching? Yeah. So I'm actually, got? I'm applying for the program, but, um, but people tend to, so the program's relatively small and the number of graduate students that apply is usually relatively low. So I've been told that essentially most people who apply <laughs> will get a spot. <laughs> so, like um, so I guess odds. I shouldn't, I shouldn't count my chickens before they hatch, but, um, <laughs> but it's called the California community college internship program. And oh. it's an internship program that's, um, pretty sure is, is unique to UCI, but it's mm -hmm. essentially an association made between the university and two local community college districts. So that's the Santa Ana Community College and the Orange Coast Community College District. Uh -huh. um, and so it's actually across multiple dis disciplines. So there are, I think, math PhDs, and I want to say physics and maybe chemistry. And then there may be some in the humanities. I'm not as clear on those. Um, but I know biological science um, uh, PhDs also join the program mm -hmm. and um, you apply and then if you get accepted you're paired with a professor who's teaching at one of those institutions um, in a subject matter as closely related to you as they can kind of match you with uh -huh. um, and then they kind of work as your mentor for as little as two quarters but you can do it for the whole year if you'd like uh -huh. um, and you can do everything from lesson planning, to designing a lecture, to writing a good test, to um, going in and watching lectures yourself. In some cases, students will guest lecture. Um, and to also things like the more administrative parts of working in a community college. Uh -huh. So going to faculty meetings and yeah. how do you, you know, how do you work out being um, a sponsor for a club or things like that. So those are all, there's all kinds of administrative duties that come along with working in the community college that are distinct yeah. from the research colleges That's where, right. where yeah. we have an administrative staff that takes yeah. care of things. Um, that like budgeting and things like that, that, that doesn't exist at the community college level. The professors yeah. do that. And so I think yeah. those, that's a big part of the job. And, and so it'll really give me the opportunity, I think, to get a firsthand look at what, what being in that environment is like to really confirm that this is where I yeah, want to go. Yeah, that's great. Sounds perfect. Yeah. So I'm really excited. I mean, it's definitely going to take me out of the lab. And so it's, I've had to kind of convince my boss that this is a great idea, but <laughs> she's been pretty supportive and, and I think kind of understands that this is going to help me get my foot in the door, um, mm -hmm. to do some adjunct teaching when I graduate yeah. um, which is really if you adjunct teaching is what you have to do it's again it's, it's kind of like hourly teaching basically you get paid to teach one class um, but that's what gets you the full-time position yeah. you know you need to show that you've had experience in a classroom running a classroom um, both the teaching and the administrative aspects of running a classroom mm -hmm. um, to get those full-time jobs so yeah. huh so that makes me curious do you so do you have any kind of stage fright or like you know <laughs> Do you get nervous talking in um, front of groups? Because, I mean, probably most of the classes are 20 or 30 students, but there yeah. can be huge. I mean, biology can be hundreds yeah, big so, auditoriums. And, I mean, I guess this is when I'm thankful I did theater in high school. Oh, there you go. So I have a performance background in that regard, and I'm just kind of an outgoing and gregarious person. I think part of it's just like the older I get, the less I care about looking like an idiot. Like, I just kind of, that ship has sailed, like too late. <laughs> so, so I guess in that regard, I feel like I'm not, I don't get very much stage fright, yeah, but when I go to give, great. when I go to give talks like at meetings or even just our, you know, our research and progress talks at the university, I always am nervous, mm -hmm. but, um, I don't know. I feel like once I get going, once I get my motor going, yeah. <laughs> you know, I kind of, the beginning is always the hardest. Yeah. That first slide, if the first slide doesn't go well, then, then Ugh. it's a crap shoot. But yeah. do <laughs> but, you have any, ways that you kind of relax or prepare? So particular? I'm a big proponent of practicing. So uh -huh. I always practice my talks a lot. Um, and again, because I, d I think I have a theater background, I, um, I tend to memorize like transitions. That's something that's really helpful okay. for me. You because, don't write out exactly what you're going to say the whole time. Well, so I usually, I mean, I script my talks, but that's mostly just to practice. I don't actually memorize the script. It's uh -huh. just to kind of help me remember what's give like an outline. Exactly. And... More of like, it's more of like an outline, I guess. Okay. But then I, if there's a particular transition that gets me from one slide to another mm -hmm. I tend to memorize those because if yeah. I get lost on the slide at least I can spit out that transition and get to the get next to the slide next one, and yeah. find myself again so I find that that's really helpful but again a big part of it is just that I practice yeah. a lot um, and that's something that our lab actually really kind of prides itself on is we we really practice our presentations and we rip apart our PowerPoints and we, everything has to be perfect when you present because it's all about that impression that you leave on other labs. And when you go uh -huh. present at an international meeting, you know, you need to bring your A game. And yeah. so we, we definitely practice. And so we, we have a running joke in our lab that everyone has to win whenever they go talk, which for the most <laughs> part, we usually 
Someone in lab almost always gets an award at something. Usually, we're usually pretty good about that. So yeah. we really pride ourselves on on our presentation skills, and that's something that I mean, my my boss is a really wonderful speaker, and so I I feel like I've learned a lot from watching her. And so in terms of teaching, I'm I definitely get nervous, but I think. The other thing that helps is you know that you're the smartest person in the room. <laughs> so it's different than giving a talk at a in a research conference where there are PIs there that you're like, this person knows way more yeah, than me. And if I everything. say it wrong, they're going to, mm-hmm. you know, that's a little bit different when you're teaching, not to say that your students aren't going to catch you if you do something stupid, but because they absolutely will and they have every <laughs> right to. But um, it helps that that you're kind of in a position of authority a little bit. Yeah. So you can feel a little bit of relaxation in that. And to be honest... When I'm teaching, so when I, this last quarter, I, um, I was TAing for Bio 93, which is an entry-level biology course here at UCI. Mm-hmm. Um, I had three different discussion sections, each with 30 students in them. And yeah. that discussion section, I was, I had to write the worksheets up and run the whole hour-long discussion and give them quizzes. And, and so I was really kind of on my own in terms of of the of kind of what we were doing curriculum-wise uh-huh. in the discussion, I mean, within the confines of the whole course. Um, and I just found that a lot of it had, a, a lot of the structure that I could give before I actually got to class made it easier to kind of be in front of them because mm-hmm. I had a game plan. I knew what yeah. we were going to do. I had my worksheets ready and I just, you know, I didn't have to do any kind of lecturing. So I think the first time I have to give a lecture, I think I'm definitely going to be shaking in my boots a little bit. <laughs> but I think that some of that just comes with practice yeah. and that you'll get And it kind of goes better. back to what you were saying before by just planning and yeah, having those worksheets and being prepared, planning yeah. them out well so that you're ready when, when you're the talking time comes. to the students. Yeah. yeah. And the reality is, is it's nice because you'll be talking about things like mitosis and transcription and kind of, you know, it's not as if I'm going to be talking about a subject that I have no expertise in, right, or that I'm, mm-hmm. you know, just coming into. These will be things that, that I can I can read the textbook just like the students do and, you know, prepare <laughs> and, be, and be ready. So um, by all means, I'm sure the first time I have to give my big, a big lecture, I will be very nervous. But um, yeah. I think, as with all things, it'll but you be also easier enjoy with time. It, it seems like. So Absolutely. There's nothing like seeing that light bulb go on. When a student yeah. that is just like, I just don't understand how ribosomes work, and then click, it, it falls <laughs> into place, like... Just seeing that once can that can take you through a bad six months because you know that that student got something that they didn't get before and that's there's nothing like that feeling it's just there's nothing yeah. like it and I think a lot of graduate students when they see their data that that's just that's it that's yeah. that feeling for them and for me it's that student when I see that student who's been working so hard in office hours every week just struggling 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 finally understand like uh-huh. oh my gosh I totally get the redox reaction like. <laughs> Yes, like you just there's nothing better than that. It's yeah. just it's the best natural high you can find. <laughs> so awesome. I'm gonna, I'm going to chase that high. <laughs> <laughs> Keep going. That's great. Great. Well, thank you. I feel like we threw in a lot of good advice for students that are looking for a career in science or trying to apply to grad school. Um do you have anything to add to that? No, I don't we, think so. Talk, yeah, I think we went over a lot of that stuff. Okay, so now let's talk about a few of these kind of fun questions. <laughs> One thing I like to ask, because I feel like some, you never know when something weird is going to come out, if there are any particularly crazy experiments or results or situations you've gotten yourself into in a lab. So I don't really have any crazy results. I mean, other than the first time I ever saw my infected cells like rolling along and like seeing my fluidics device work the first time yeah. and all of it's like it was imaging in three different colors and cells are moving in real time and yeah. every, you know having all of that kind of come into place I was I kind of had to do a little mini happy dance I was so excited <laughs> and like not shake the microscope I was so excited um but I think I have a pretty good funny story of something that'll happen to you if you think you're alone in the lab when you're not. Um, so I'm well known in my lab for um, liking to sing along to the music as well as bust a few moves um, in the lab. And so it was early in the morning on a weekday. It was maybe like 7.30 or 8. And most, most universities, the graduate students don't roll in until about 9 or 10 sometimes. We tend to work kind of shifted schedules, but I'm kind of a morning person, so I'm in early. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the professors don't come in until later as well. So it was maybe 7.30 or 8 in the morning. And in our tissue culture room, our radio is by the door. And so I had the radio on, probably kind of loud, <laughs> to some pop station. And, the, and I was in a tissue culture hood. And so there's the, the air blowing. And so it's loud. And I can't uh-huh. hear anything. 
and I was cleaning out the tissue culture hood, which requires you to be kind of bent over. My hand reached inside, wiping it down. And um, there was some Bruno Mars song on the radio, and I was like straight booty shaken. It was very embarrassing. And um, and a professor that is like right down the hall from us oh my came in and like had to like interrupt me and like say my name really loud for me to see him. And he was looking for somebody and I like turned to him and I'm very, for those of you who obviously can't see me, I'm very fair and blonde. And I went like fuchsia. I was just bright red because I was like straight booty shaking. It was really embarrassing. And right before he left, he said, don't worry, I didn't see anything. And then turned around and left the lab. And I just about oh, died. that is awesome. So, and I'm pretty sure he like really hasn't looked me in the eye ever since. But, Neither of you will ever forget that moment. Yeah, but he's That's never said great. anything. But I think it's pretty hilarious. I, I don't know. Yeah. I find it very funny. But, but so, yeah. So beware when you're in a tissue culture room <laughs> with the radio loud that someone could walk in on you At if any you're moment. singing or dancing. So just be aware that someone might see your moves <laughs> that's great though I feel like we're, we're all so serious sometimes in a lab everyone's kind of quiet and just yeah. in their own world so that so, would probably make my day if I walked in on someone dancing well you're more than welcome singing. to come down the hall <laughs> they'll be... start popping in every once in I'm, a while you'll, you will catch me because I I'm like dancing around all the time I music is an important part of my day and so so yeah just be aware that your best dance moves could be stolen by a professor if they catch you <laughs> awesome um, okay, what else? Let's see. Oh, do you have a favorite or particularly inspirational scientist, living or dead? Um, um, so I was a big Jane Goodall fan, young in my ooh, life. Yeah. I read a lot of her books. And, um, and I originally, before I wanted to, to kind of do molecular biology and cell biology, I really wanted to be... Um, I guess kind of an, an animal trainer or work yeah, with animals. Uh-huh. And that was, I mean, I guess a lot of little girls maybe I are think into I animals. I through that phase too. I was like, I love animals. <laughs> I want to be a veterinarian. I want to, you know, yeah. so, so, so she was really inspirational to me. And, and a awesome. huge thing with Jane Goodall, I think is, which now as someone, um, as, as an older, uh, I guess, I guess also woman in science, I can really appreciate that she broke a lot of barriers for women in her yeah. field. Mm-hmm. Um, and that she was kind of laughed at when she first started, um, because women didn't do, you know, kind of the behavioral and, and primate science the way that she did. And so, um, oh. and, and it was very revolutionary to go and really live, you know, out in the bush <laughs> the way yeah. that she did. And so I think that that's really great because it takes pioneering women who are willing to get laughed at for being crazy and doing things that, that people shouldn't do to, to bring new people into the fold. So I think that that was really inspirational. So she's someone yeah. that, that I think, that's even though great. she's not in my field is, is someone that I think a lot of people can learn from. Yeah. Awesome. That's a good one. Okay. And the last thing I wanted to ask you is if you have any sciencey book recommendations. So I guess my two favorite books, and these were, this goes back to the, some of it's I guess sci-fi that I read with my dad. One of my favorite books is The Andromeda Strain, which is a Michael oh, Crichton book yeah. um, about bacteria from space. Um, <laughs> but it's super, it's, it's awesome. It's really great. Um, and there's been great versions of it done on TV um, uh-huh. and movies and things like that. So it's, I think it's a... Maybe that got you into kind of the virus the bugs. And, yeah, exactly. yeah, the bugs. And, um, and the other one is The Hot Zone, which is uh, Richard Preston, oh, which is yeah. a wonderful book. And again, that, the movie Outbreak was based on Hot Zone. Yes. Um, and the, another book written by him is Demon in the Freezer, which is uh-huh. about a smallpox or yeah, smallpox outbreak ooh. out of a lab. So that's also very like, ooh, crazy. Yeah, um, and so I, again, I like those kind of sci-fi things, but I think it, um, there's just enough, just enough, just enough of a touch of truth that, yeah. that you can really get excited and interested in it. So I think yeah. that those are really great, good reads if you're into sci-fi, but you're also kind of into biology. Yeah. Cool. Great. Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Of course. It was a blast. And yeah, that's the end.